प्रवेश
No, they're they're in breakout rooms. I just went over to the place. Okay. So they got most of the wires. Okay. I'm gonna go over there. Oh. All right. Um, the, the thin side of that meat is cooked. It's like 140. So it should be fine. Yeah. It's really cheap. Yeah. It was six bucks. So I'm thinking in the backyard. Yeah. I don't want to be on the pool. Yeah. This side here should be our patio. And okay. Then... I'll worry. I'll worry about that later. I got a lot to do. So I gotta get these guys back now. So okay. All right. Alrighty, guys. I think everyone's coming back on now. How did it go? Yeah. What you did you solve world uh world, world peace? No, we didn't end up time. Oh, <laughs> that was snarky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, well, what what we what did, what did you come find up a with? way to solve some world hunger with some of the uh, foods that we suggest? Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> There you go. I want to know what Corona Car's favorite food was. Spicy chicken spicy or spicy food? Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it was, it was spicy. Yeah. Yeah. I've been there. Pastor I've had it. Rob, when Pastor Rob visited, uh, visited us, we have given him very spicy chicken. Yes. I don't know what food he will eat, but he suffered a lot regarding food. But I, hope <laughs> so I will definitely uh, study about your food and give you best food, sir. I will okay. give right. you yeah. best food. Yeah, I thought that would be an interesting question just because see what he would what he would say. So, all right. Um, how, how'd you deal with the question? What, what what kind of things came up? What causes you to stumble or or or, or struggle or or others or what have you? Pride, selfishness. Okay. Pride, selfishness. Okay. Yeah. Decision making and want to take take that over. Mm. Control, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Distractions of the world. Okay. Like anything in particular, though, John? Okay. You don't have to answer. No, uh, I did. I I used kind of the world in a in a big sense yep, of, okay. uh, of, of things that people uh, lifestyles that people don't want to give up or just distractions from, from just uh, mm. life in general. And yeah, uh, yeah. that is not holy or righteous. Yeah. It's, it's easy to fall away or not okay. stay focused in the way. Also like um, cultural traditions, um, you know, just, Sometimes even if you're brought up in the church, it has nothing to do with surrendering to God. But, you know, a couple of people said, you know, your traditions that you got brought up with. Mm. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, for myself, it's the navigating between two cultures. Or, I mean, um, it's really two cultures because the culture of Christ is different from the culture of this world. And um, I grew up with a certain culture and I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't have a faith and practice a faith. Okay. So 
I'm navigating from the place of, I had this culture, now there's a new culture. And, and the differences between those cultures are going, okay, this is a culture I know. So how do I translate, transfer into this new culture? And, and, and they can, can be a friction of going, well, but this is how we, we did it. But yeah. now, oh, this is how Jesus does it. <laughs> right, so right. There's two cultures. In reality, there are two cultures. This, I have the Korean culture, and then I have the culture of the world. And, of course, be mixed American and Korean. Then there's another culture, which is mm -hmm. uh, Christianity following Jesus. But it's... It's, it, it can be very difficult to navigate and to always figure out, okay, is this, am I doing this right? Yeah, or no. is this, let's do it? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> All right. Very good. All right. Anybody else? We also mentioned like, um, I think Derry talked about the traditions, but I was a little more specific in the churches. That the churches aren't teaching good, solid theology and oftentimes we're left kind of holding up bags of, well, what is this really all about? So right, right. Do I surrender right. because I, this doesn't make sense. So, yeah. All right. Very, fair enough. All right. So, if you read the script that I gave, and obviously I just gave it this afternoon, and I apologize again for that. I think the parable of the sower is perhaps the most significant parable that Jesus told. He even says in the middle of Mark 4, we'll look at it in a, in a, in a few minutes. That if you understand this parable, or if you don't understand this parable, how will you understand any of the parables? And it seems as though this parable is paradigmatic for everything. This, this is it. And there's really a couple of questions to ask. One would be, why did Jesus tell the parable? But another question that we want to ask also is, well, why did Mark tell this parable? I mean, Jesus told a lot of parables, especially according to the Gospel of Luke. Why did Mark pick this one and not, not another one? So we have those two questions to, to address and, and to look at. And I know that the idea of this study, the first four or five weeks of the study is, all right, what is the gospel? And I think we've kind of hammered that home, right? The gospel is that Jesus is Lord. And we recognize that that's not a trite statement, that that is extremely deep and extremely rich. And we're going to spend a lifetime trying to figure out what that means. And there's a couple of directions that we want to go from here. One, we can go, okay, what does it mean to follow Jesus as Lord? And that's the idea of discipleship, et cetera. And that, we're going to do that in a, in a bit. Another direction is, what does the kingdom of God look like? Uh, so following Jesus as Lord means to be the means through which God does the work of building his kingdom. And I'll explain all that in detail later. What does the kingdom of God even look like? So we looked at Mark 1 a number of weeks ago. And the beginning of it was the very first words of Jesus are the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, great. Well, what does that mean? And so what I think we'll do in our next study is look at the question of what is the kingdom of God? Because I think that's the big question. Now, I was thinking about this, like, oh, well, kind of the obvious question really should be, you know, what does discipleship look like? And what does it mean to be a disciple? And I thought, you know, how American is that? Because that question is so individualistic. What does it mean for me to follow Jesus? And the kingdom of God is this corporate entity of God creating his people to do the work of his kingdom. And I thought, you know what, that's just simply a much better way to go. And then, of course, we'll, follow, we'll focus on what does it mean to be a disciple. So the next study we're going to do is, what does it mean? Uh, what does the kingdom of God mean? What does it look like? What does it look like to build the kingdom of God? What does it look like to do kingdom work? And remember, the whole idea is that we're asking these larger questions of, what do I do as a Christian in every aspect of my life? What do I do as a Christian in, in the public sex sector, in the public sphere, in the political sphere, in the religious sphere, in the ethical sphere? You know, how do we address these ethical questions? How do we address the issues of politics and culture and society? How do we live in a democratic society? And you know, what does all this mean? And I think most of us are going to recognize the church, at least in America, is really pretty messed up. And if you don't realize that it's messed up, I'm here to tell you it's pretty messed up. And I think we're just kind of catching on. And it's been messed up for a while. So what do we do about that? And how do we, how do we address all that? And I think the answer is that we start by saying, well, we got to go back to square one and say, what's the gospel? What does that look like? And then what does the kingdom of God look like? And now how, do, is it, how does kingdom work and being a kingdom person address this issue of politics or this issue of foreign policy or this issue of ethics or this issue of 
uh, economics, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's kind of the goal. All right, so the, quite, the point of this, of this passage, however, is this. I think this actually is really, really crucial for why we compromise when it comes to this issue or that issue or that issue or that issue. In other words, if we're going to, let's say, you know, a year from now, whatever it is, we start delving into these issues of politics or ethics or, or economics or immigration or, or um, race issues that are right, prevalent in the United States or um, uh, refugee crisis. Uh, if we start looking, we have to have this big picture of kingdom and Jesus and Christ-centeredness and what does all that mean? But then the question is, okay, but why do we maybe compromise on that view over here or compromise on that view over here? And I think the parable of the sower actually provides the framework for which we can answer those questions. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So now, in order, however, to understand the parable, and so there's a lot to, to discuss. And so there's not only, let's look at this parable and answer those questions. Why did Jesus tell it? Why did Mark tell it? What is, and then what does it mean to us? And then, pro, and then let's process that. It's going to take us a couple of weeks. Uh, probably this week and next. And so next week we'll be kind of reviewing and reminding ourselves of what the parable is all about and what it means. And then maybe a discussion of, the, of these bigger picture questions. Just maybe. Like I said, she's got a collar on that that, that um, vibrates and buzzes, but she just tolerates it uh, if she wants to bark. She just tolerates it. So, um, uh, John, you guys all know what, uh, and surely you know what Ruby's like. Uh, so, all right, here we go. So now to understand the parable well, let's get a little bit of our mind. Let's get a look. I'm going to go back to chapter three a little bit of the Gospel of Mark to give us a little bit of a context. Uh, actually, since I have my Bible open there now, I'm going to read Isaiah 53, 55. So if you want to turn to Isaiah 55 first, and I think this reference is on your notes it's some, somewhere, but I'm not sure, maybe in the chapter four notes. So Isaiah 55. And if you were in our Isaiah study, and you may not remember, but, uh, but just to remind us all, of course, from chapter 40 through, 50, uh, through 66, uh, there's a promise of restoration, the promise of renewal, the promise of returning from exile. And Isaiah 55 kind of climaxes what, what's actually part two of the book of Isaiah. And in all reality, the whole chapter of Isaiah 55 is, is worth the read right now, but we won't, we won't get into it. Uh, but verse one, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Okay, so I'm going to skip down. Uh, and that's the significance of that is those of you who are too poor, those who don't have any money, those of you who are, who are outcasts and guess what? I'm going to give you free food, uh, free bread, free wine, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, verses eight through nine are, are really significant for a, a lot of different topics. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And but verses 10 through 13 now actually provide us a context for the parable of the sower. How would a first century Israelite have heard Jesus's words uh, when he spoke them. And I think this passage would have been in their minds. So Isaiah 55 verses 10 through 13. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it barren sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread of the eater. So shall my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter which I have sent it. For, it will go, uh, for you will go forth with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth in the shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, and the, cy the cypress will come up. And so the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign, which will not be cut off. All right, so what Isaiah is getting at, and then we'll turn Isaiah to Mark 3, is that the way God's going to do the work of restoring his people is through the word which is a seed, a seed that is sown. And the word seed has all kinds of, of implications and meanings there also. So now let's get a little bit of context of the parable. So let me first note this, that the gospel of Mark really only has two parables in it. It has the parable in Mark 4, which technically is like three or four parables. Okay, so you can say, well, Rob, there's more than, more, there's more than two parables because Mark 4 is like four parables. Yeah, but as we're going to discuss, the four parables in Mark 4 are actually all related to the one parable of the sower. So they're kind of addendums. 
you can call them separate parables if you want. So we have four parables in Mark 4, but let's just look at that as one big parable. The next parable is in Mark 12. And it's the parable of the landowner and, 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 and all that. But the significance of that is in Mark 12, Jesus has already reached Jerusalem. He's at the end of his ministry now. And so as far as the ministry of Jesus is concerned, the primary public teaching of, of Jesus and the primary teaching of Jesus with his disciples, Mark 4 is the only parable that Jesus tells. And there's other things that are parabolic, but as far as parables are concerned, this is it. And again, you can say that there's four of them. Now, the odd thing about Mark 4 being the only parable is that at the end of Mark 4, and I know I told you to turn to Mark 3, but we'll look at Mark 4 for a second. It says in verse 33, uh, does anyone read it? Instead of me doing all talking, Mark 4, 33 and 34. Mark 4, 33 and 34. I'm there. Thank you, Anthony. All right. Uh, the use of parables. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. So it says he didn't talk to them without using a parable. He's, he's like, he's always talking in parables. Yet this is the only parable that Mark records. Now, again, we probably have in mind the fact that Mark's readers already know a lot of the story. Mark's kind of putting it all down together and, 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 and crafting it in the context of Jesus as the son of God and telling this great story. But his readers seem to know a lot of it. So maybe they knew some of the parables and Mark didn't think it was worth, it was necessary to repeat them. But the point of that is, is that parables is the manner through which Jesus teaches this is really the only parable in all of the teaching of Jesus until we get to the end. It's the public ministry and the private disciple, private training of the disciples. That means this parable is really important. It's really, really significant. So that's kind of my first point. Now, the second thing is, is the context. Uh, well, we talked a little bit last week about how Mark sandwiches stories. He'll tell a story, he'll interrupt it with another story, and then I'll go back and tell the first story or, and finish the first story. And he does that just throughout. And there are sandwiches within sandwiches within sandwiches. So one, one story might actually be the, the end of a previous story, but it's also the middle of another story. It's, it's really complex and it's, it's wonderful. It's fascinating. So if we go back to Mark 3, we're going to know at least the early context will be starting in verse 20. Mark 3, verse 20. And it says, he came home, Mark 3, verse 20, and the multitude gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat, eat, even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went to take custody of him. For they were saying, he's lost his mind. He's lost his senses. And the scribes, verse 22, who came down from Jerusalem, were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Now, Beelzebul in the literature is another name for Satan. This is the only time it really occurs in the biblical text, but it's another name for the devil, for, for Satan. So we know how he does it. So his own people were saying he's, he's out of his mind. But the scribes were saying, oh, he's possessed by the devil. He casts out demons by the rule of demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. So there's that. All right. But he doesn't really tell a parable. He kind of speaks parabolically. That's the, that's the distinction I would make. He's speaking in, in parabolic sense, but he's not telling a story as much. So uh, verse 23. Uh, somebody want to read verses 23 through 27. If you read 28, you're going to make me ask for a question I don't want to get into tonight. Mark 3, 23 through 27. I can do that. Thanks, John. Find it here. 23. Okay. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Oh, verse, his, start in verse 23, John, if you uh, will. Is that? Yeah, you're, you're oh, right that, that was yeah. 20, excuse me. That was just me. verse 20. Okay, yep. uh, 23. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. 
In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. All right. So Jesus now says, here's the deal. It doesn't make any sense that I'm working together with Satan because I'm going, I'm doing the opposite of what Satan wants to do. Satan's the deceiver and he's deluded and bound people from an unbelief. And Jesus answers, I had to come into Satan's house and bind him so that others can be freed and can understand and can believe. That's kind of the context that's happening here. Now let's skip down. Verse 30, 31. Somebody, somebody want to read verses 31 through 35. Mark 3, 31 through 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Okay. Now that's, by the way, huge for all kinds of other reasons that we're not going to get into tonight. But I don't know if you noticed it, but there's a little bit of a sandwich that's happened here. At the beginning in verse 20, he came to a home. And verse 21, his own people, which is a difficult translation. What does he mean by his own people? Does he mean his relatives? Uncertain. Uh, They were saying, you're out of your mind. Then we have the binding of Satan in the middle of the passage so that he can't deceive the nations any longer. And then we have verse 31. And his mother and brothers arrived at the home that he's in. So there you go. His own people come to him. His mother and brothers come to him in the middle of the binding of Satan. All right. And, and that'll be irrelevant as we proceed. Then we'll go to chapter four. Now, note very briefly as we, as we move on, that his mother and his brothers were outside, verse, 30, verse 31, standing outside. They sent word to him. All right. That seems to be intriguing because outside is going to mean something. And Jesus' answer is, well, wait a minute, who are my mother and my brothers? But it's the one who does the will of my father in heaven, my mother, my brother, and my sisters. Verse uh, Chapter 4. He began to teach them again by the sea. Verse 1. And such a very great multitude gathered him that he, got out, that he got into a boat in the sea, and he sat down. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. He was teaching them many things in parables. And he was saying to them in his teaching... Now, you might, you probably can't see this in your English Bibles, but the parable itself is going to be verses 3 through 9. Verses 10 through, 13, 10 through 12, the, the disciples are going to say, okay, what does the parable mean? We don't understand it. So 3 through 9, he tells the parable. 10 through 12, the disciples say, what does it mean? 13 through 20, he explains what the parable means. Uh, again, a sandwich. Okay, maybe you know, not, not a massive or major one, but nonetheless. But in the middle, what the parable means, and the disciples asking him, hey, what, what does this mean, and why can't we understand it? And that is the parable and the explanation. What you, what you won't notice in your English Bibles is that the very first word of the parable in verse 3 and the very last word of the parable in verse 9 is the same word in the Greek text, and it's the word here. Okay. So uh, my translation says, listen to this in verse three. Your translation might say, hear this. It, it's a kuo. It's, it's here. Like the word for acoustics, right? It's here. And the very last word is in verse nine, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So my English Bible has the word here at the end, at the end also. That's a way of framing something, right? That an author is going to begin and end a section or a chapter or a large or the whole book by framing something. The gospel of Mark is framed by Jesus is the son of God. Chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 15, verse 39, the Roman centurion says, this man was the son of God. Now, it doesn't have to be the absolute end, but it is in this instance. The very first word and the very last word of the parable are here. Now, again, your English Bibles might not help you a lot here. I can't speak for Kronikar's Bible. I'm not sure what language it's in, but here we go. Uh, Note, what I want you to know is how often the word here occurs. 
So verse 3 and verse 9, it begins and it ends the parable. And then it says, uh, verse uh, 16, when they heard the word, or hear the word, verse 16. Verse 18, the ones who heard the word. Verse 20, when they hear the word. So the word hear is pretty prominent. But note verse 23. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. That's actually identical to verse 9. Well, not Maybe not absolutely identical in the Greek. I'd have, I'd have to look it up. But he who has an ears to hear, let him hear in verse 9. So verse 23 is telling us, well, maybe he's on the same topic. In fact, look at verse 24. Take care of what you listen to, which is the word akuo again, or a version, a variant of it. So the word here appears in verse 23. In fact, it appears in the exact same phrase as the phrase in verse 9. The word listen or hear again in verse 24. So whatever's happening, the word here is important. And remember, we read earlier, verse 33, I think John read it. In verse 33, he didn't speak to them without a parable as they were able to, I'm sorry, verse 23. He was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. Ah, the parables are for those who have ears to hear. Okay, so that's going to be one of the significant things. My, one of the th points I want to make with that is that verse 21 is not really the start of a new parable. It kind of is, because the parable is in verses 3 through 9. It's the parable of the sower. 10 through 12 is the, hey, what does this mean, Jesus? Explain it to us. 13 through 19, or 13 to 20 is, here's what it means. And he, he tells you the interpretation of the parable. Verse 21 in my Bible says, and he was saying to them. But note, and he was saying to them, it's like he's carrying on a discourse, right? I mean, just the English says, okay, and he continued by saying this. And the fact that verse 23 says, if anyone has just here, let him hear. And that verse 24 says, listen or hear. This, whatever, if you want to call 21 through 25 another parable, that's fine, but it's related to the previous one. It, it, it has to be it, it, in some way. Verse 26, and he was saying, there you go. Again, and note, it's like uh, verse 26, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And I know we haven't read the parable of the sower yet, but it's about seeds that are sown. So we might want to call verses 26 through 29 a third parable. But the fact that it's about seeds and soil says it's intimately connected to the parable of the sower in verses 3 through 9. And then verse 30, and he said, which again means he's still talking and he hasn't stopped. And what's it about? It's about a mustard seed in verse 31 and how it grows large. And the fact that it's about a seed again tells us, okay, you can argue we have four parables in this passage, but they're clearly all connected with the idea of seed and the idea of hearing. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Any, any questions on that? Is that, uh, is that clear so far? We've got some large complex thing going on here that verses three through 32 are all about the same topic here. And in the previous chapter, they accused him of being possessed by the devil. That's how you do these things. His answer was, that doesn't even make any sense because how could Satan be divided against itself? Right? I'm, I'm, I'm undoing the work of Satan. I can't be doing the work of Satan at the same time. And he spoke that in a little bit of a parabolic uh, frame. All right, now, unless there's any questions, let's go ahead and read verses 3 through 9. If somebody wants to read Mark 4, verses 3 through 9. Chapter 4, verse yeah. 3. Uh, chapter 4, verses 3 through 9, Carol. Thank you. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. So they did not bear grain. 
Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. And then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, so what do we have? Well, we have a parable about a sower that went out to sow, which probably reminds the Israelites, a Jewish reader of Isaiah 55 that we read earlier, that God's going to bring his harvest, his restoration, his return from exile by means of the seed that's sown. And it's an agricultural parable, which of course makes sense, by the way, because it's an agricultural community, right? They, they just know it. And some of you have been to the land. If you've been in the land, you know there's no such thing as soil in all of Judea and Galilee that doesn't have rocks in it. They're everywhere. They're just, you can't get rid of all the rocks. You can try and get rid of them as much as possible, but they're still going to be everywhere. In fact, they take the rocks and they build retaining walls around it, right? Terraces to, you know, to hold the water in. So the rocks are, are, are quite abundant. But notice that there's four kinds of soil. The seed falls on four kinds of soil. And initially it might even sound like, wow, it's just scattering seeds even on the road. And, that, and the point, purpose of that would be just well, the abundance of the seed that's going out. Some falls on the road, but the birds snatch it away. But note that the other three seeds, or the seeds on the other three soils, all goes into the soil. And it looks like they all bear plants, but only one of them bears fruit. So we have four soils, only one of which bears fruit. And we won't get into it, but we might want to be reminded of Daniel chapter 2 and of Daniel chapter 7, where there's four kingdoms, then, and ultimately they're replaced by God's divine kingdom. And that seems to make a little bit of sense in Mark 12, but we won't, we won't get too deep into this tonight. But just bear in mind, four soils, only one bears fruit. Three of them, however, bear a plant. In fact, it says they receive the word of joy. Uh, well, that's going to be in the interpretation anyways. Here we go. The disciples come to him as soon as he was alone, verse 10. His followers, along with the 12. So it's not just the 12, but others. They began asking him about the parables, plural, which is interesting. And he said to you, verse 11, this is a quote from Isaiah 6. If you remember this passage when we did Isaiah a while ago. He said, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, they get everything in parables. Remember that while seeing, they may, not, they may see and not perceive. While hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. Okay, really confusing, right? And I'm going to imagine that verse 12 is like, I don't understand. It seems to be the opposite of what Jesus is trying to get at. Right, first thing to note is that the parable is about the kingdom of God. He tells you in verse 11, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. And in fact, the parable of the seed in verse 26, it begins by saying the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And the parable of the mustard seed in verse 30, how should we picture the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we present it? So we know that the parable of the seed and the four soils is about the coming of the kingdom of God. And again, if you're an Israelite in the first century, the coming of the kingdom of God means the great restoration from exile and captivity. The restoration that comes when God brings his kingdom. This is what Jesus is announcing. However, if we go back to chapter three for a second, he had to enter the strong man's house and bind the strong man. Satan has had control and has been having influence. And you can't even understand what I'm talking about. Unless I first bind Satan from being the deceiver. I'm kind of, I'm interpreting it for us a little bit. From, from, so I had to do the, I had to, I can't be working in cahoots with the devil because the devil's the one that's actually blinded you from seeing and hearing. So I had to bind him so that at least some might see and some might hear. All right, now verse 12 is a quote from Isaiah 6. And I know it's complicated, so let me see if I can, uh, if I can remind ourselves of what we learned in Isaiah 6. It's not vital to what's happening, so if we don't grab it, it's okay, and we'll, we'll move on to the, to the interpretation of the parable, at least get, get that far tonight. And we're not going to obviously get through the whole thing tonight. In Isaiah 6, the people of Israel 
thought they were righteous. They thought they were doing good. They, and God's answer in Isaiah chapter one was, I hate your festivals. I hate your new moons. I hate your Sabbaths. I hate your, um, your fastings, you know, do justice, please. And so Isaiah is like, comes in, comes in the story and God's like, who's going to go for us? Who, who am I going to send? And Isaiah says, here, send me. And God says, okay, great. And I want you to go. And I want you to render their hearts insensitive so that they can't see or hear or, or understand lest they repent and be saved. And Isaiah's prophetic ministry was, I have to render you people, you think you can hear, you think you can see, and God can't use you because of that. You're in sin, and you've fallen away, and you don't, and aren't obeying the Lord. And so Isaiah's got to come along. One second. Ruby, Ruby, knock it off. I didn't mute it again. It's garbage night, so the neighbors bringing their garbage out. So my protective dog has to defend has to defend the neighborhood. Uh, Ruby. Ruby is a dog. Yeah, we know. <laughs> Sorry. Here we go. So Isaiah's, Isaiah's job was to render them incapable of hearing and seeing. Otherwise, they might repent and go, oh, guess what? Everything's fine. I'm like, no, I'm going to harden your hearts so that you guys, and, and ultimately, I'm going to save a remnant. And this remnant is called the seed in Isaiah 6, or this okay. comes from the stump. And that remnant, obviously, ultimately is Jesus, right? If you went to Isaiah study, we kind of went through that. The, that remnant is ultimately Jesus. And Jesus comes along and through Jesus, the restoration is going to happen. And that's what Jesus is proclaiming. Hey, I'm here to proclaim that restoration. But some of you are still in the place of Isaiah. Some of you guys still can't see or understand or, or hear or know. Or, you're not capable of doing so. How do, we do, how do we find out what the answer is? And the answer is you come to Jesus. And that's what we, kind of what we discussed last week. If you come to Jesus, he'll explain everything to you. But if you don't want to believe, and you refuse to come to Jesus, you don't get to know. And perhaps there's a statement in the Gospel of Matthew that leads us to believe that this might be the case. What Jesus is saying is that if you do know and still don't repent, you're in greater judgment. And again, you got to be really careful about our theology of judgment, our theology of hell. Of the, we don't have a great theology of this. We kind of manufacture one. But so what does that mean? Well, I don't know. Let's just leave it there. But, the, but it seems that the more you know and still don't repent, the more accountable you are in Judgment Day, and therefore it's worse for you. So Jesus is talking in parables was to protect them from this. If you want to know, I'll tell you the answer. Just come. And no, it's not just the 12 who come to him. It's Jesus and his disciples. All right, but now notice also verse 13. Do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand any of the parables? Or depending on, the, on your translation, all the parables. If you don't understand this one, you won't get any of them. This parable is the parable above all parables that explains everything that's going on. What's the kingdom of God and what's happening? So here's what I would, here's what I would say. The first question I asked was, why did Jesus tell this parable? And the second question is, is why did Mark tell about Jesus is telling this parable? So Jesus tells the parable for his disciples' sake, right? And that's who he's speaking to for, and for whoever else wants to hear. Mark tells it for the sake of his re readers. And I think what this parable explains, well, actually, let, let's read the explanation for the parable and then, and then I'll say that. How's that? Let's go ahead. If somebody wants to read and we'll go just a little bit further tonight. Uh, somebody read verses 14 through 20. Anybody got it? I got it. Thanks, Anthony. You want me to go? Yeah. I'm um, out of the NRSV. Okay. Uh, the sower sows the word. These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. 
but they have no root and endure only for a while. Then when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are those sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and it yields nothing. And these are the ones sown on good soil. They hear the word, they accept it and bear fruit. 30 and 60 and a hundredfold. Okay. We have one seed sown upon the roadside and the birds snatch it away. Well, the birds represent Satan, which tells us that we were correct in reading back in chapter three. We know how you do these things, Jesus. It's by the power of the devil. And what's Jesus's answer? Actually, you're the one influenced by the devil, not me. The seed on the roadside are the ones who, who they can't even hear the word. It doesn't sink in at all. They don't receive it with joy. They receive it with anger. And that's the scribes who want to kill him, right? From chapter three, they want to kill him. They can't hear what Jesus has to say. Their eyes are darkened. Their, their, heart, their hearts are hardened. They can't see. They can't believe. They can't hear. Why? Because you're influenced by the devil who snatched the seed away from you. And you wonder why he spoke in parables, right? And again, there's two reasons why he spoke in parables. One was, well, maybe a third, and that would be to protect those who really don't want to believe so that they won't fall under greater judgment. Okay. But one of the reasons is because he just condemned the religious leaders of being deceived by the devil, and that's not going to go over too well. The other reason is because they're anti-Rome. If it's about establishing the kingdom of God, that means Rome, uh, Caesar ain't Caesar. Caesar ain't Lord. He might be Caesar, but he ain't Lord. And if Jesus is teaching about an insurrection or is perceived to be teaching about an insurrection, that's a dangerous thing. And remember, by the way, he was killed for teaching about an, inter in, uh, about an insurrection. He was killed for claiming to be king. So, eventually, so they eventually killed him for this. I can't let on too early that I really am the king. So it's protect him, protect him and the followers against Rome and the anti-imperialism of the gospel and also protect him against the religious leaders who actually were being indicted about the parables. And if you look at the parable of Mark 12, it says they didn't understand the parable, but they knew he was speaking about them. So like, okay, I don't know what he means, but I think we're the bad guys in this thing, whatever that might mean. Now, the other thing to note is that two of the other three soils, or, or maybe even say all three of the other soils, we can say all received the word with joy. It doesn't say that, that they all did, but we can assume that's the case. They all received the word with joy. They like this message. But at the end of the day, only one soil bore fruit. Now, one of the keys to understanding this parable is that don't, con don't consider the last soil, the good soil. Don't conclude, oh, it had no rocks and it had no thorns. Because as we said at the beginning, there's no such thing as soil in the Palestinian world that has no rocks. I mean, it, they're everywhere. The point of that is that the good soil bore fruit even despite the thorns and even despite the stones or the rocky places, depending on your translation. That was the good soil. The other soils didn't. Why? Because, well, the thorns choked it away or because the stones you know, threatened it away. And so go back to the question, why did Jesus tell the parable to his disciples? Well, I think because when he dies, they're going to go, hey, guys, what's up? Is this even worth it? Or, or were we just fools? We thought he was the Christ, but, uh, you know, we fed like 5,000 a few weeks ago. And again, it could have been two years ago. We don't know. And now there's nobody here. We're in a home by ourselves and we're clinging to a promise. Hey, some of the women said they saw the tomb being empty. Some of, some of you guys said that you saw him, but I mean, seriously, is this even real? And the answer is Jesus told us that the only ones who would remain were the ones who, who bore good fruit despite the stones and despite the thorns. Once the stones come, they're all leaving. And what's the stones? Crucifixion's a stone. The stone is persecution and suffering. You see, the thousands of people followed Jesus because they liked what he had to say. He's talking about uh, a kingdom that's going to overthrow Rome and Roman oppression. We've been oppressed since the Egyptians for 2,000 years. The Egyptians, the Babylon, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the, the Persians, the Greeks, uh, and now Rome. And now the kingdom of God's come and it's here. This is awesome. We're excited. Good news. 
And then this guy, you know, he's like feeding us and healing some of our sick people. And this is all great. We're, we're in, Jesus, we're in, we're in, we're in. Now, I'm a little put off about this. I take up your cross thing, but I don't know what he's talking about. Whatever. This is just good news. Once they find out that he really means take up your cross. Oh, no, I'm, no I'm, that's not for me. Once persecution arises, the, the seed sown among the stones, the rocky places, falls away. It, the, it chokes it up and it can't bear fruit. And then the other one was, hey, you know, yeah, great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, here's what you must do, Mr. Rich Man. You have to sell your possessions and give them to the poor and then come follow me. Oh, that's a, that's really nice saying, Jesus. That, that, that'll preach really well. You should start a church about that. But you don't really mean that, do you? Once they realize that he really meant it, you have to give up your comforts, your desire for wealth and power and pleasure and privilege. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. So as they get to the end, and now there's only a few disciples left, and there's 120 in the book of Acts, they're reminded of this parable. Remember, this parable is the one by which if you understand this one, you're going to understand all the other ones. And what does this one say? It explains why everybody else has deserted him. Because they're not willing to suffer persecution or they're not willing to surrender their, their power, privilege, wealth, and comforts. Only those who've done that. And remember, the disciples this began with, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, them jumping out of the boat and leaving their father behind. We did it, Jesus. We left everything to follow you. Great. That's what, that's, what, that's what it takes. Now, one more point, and then we'll stop for tonight. And because we have, well, we have, quote, three more parables to look at. But I want us to look at verse 21 for just a second. And all of our English Bibles get it wrong. And I'm assuming that whatever language Corinne Carr is reading in it, it probably gets it wrong in his language also. And here's the reason, and here's what happens. Verse 21 says, he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a peck measure, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? I can assure you, without question, this is not an issue of, well, the Greek could go either this way or that way. Every English Bible says a lamp is not brought or something along those lines. The Greek does not say that. The Greek says a lamp is coming. The difference is this. When something is brought, it's a passive. It's, it's somebody else brought it. The active form, the lamp is coming, means the lamp is coming. But the problem is this. Lamps don't come. They're brought. How could a lamp come? It's like, it doesn't have the ability to do the action. It's an active verb means that the subject is doing the action, and the subject is the lamp, and lamps can't act. Lamps can only be brought. So every English Bible says a lamp is brought, but the Greek says a lamp is coming. Anybody know why would it say a lamp is coming? Oh, like his resurrection. Well, okay, very good. Somebody else? The light of Christ. Uh, you're, 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 yes, it's like, I want to say ding, 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 but I want you to make sure that we clearly understand exactly what the ding, ding, ding is for, right? Who or what is the lamp? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> so is the lamp coming or is it brought? It's coming because Jesus is the lamp. He's the sower. Of the, he's the bread. And now he's the lamp. So the answer is a lamp is coming. And look what he says. Not to be hidden. But to be brought out and put on a lampstand. And by the way, in the book of Revelation, where the lampstands, right? The seven churches of the seven lampstands. Can you use the word Messiah in there too? Or is that not? Well, sure. Okay. I'm coming. I, I'm the lamp. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'm coming not to be hidden. And what's the, what, what's that, what does that have to do with the previous parable? And the answer is, when you make me known, you can expect thorns and you can expect rocks. If you want Jesus and you want no thorns and no rocks, then great. Make him some personal savior whom you don't have to tell anybody else about. And you can have Jesus and no stones and no thorns. But I didn't come to be hidden. I came to be made known. And when you make me known, the consequence is suffering. 
whether it's economic, that's the thorns, or social, that's the thorns, or actually physical violence against you, that's the stones. Here's the reality. Once they figured out that I actually mean I'm the Christ, I'm the king, and Rome doesn't like that. The religious leaders don't like that because I'm not pronouncing the kind of kingdom that they want. We'll get into that in the next uh, class that we're going to do on what is the kingdom of God. Once they recognize that, persecution and suffering are coming your way. And only the one who puts the lamp on the lampstand, despite the stones and despite the thorns, will bear fruit. And oh, by the way, 30, 60, and 100 fold. That's, by the way, that's impossible. Seed cannot bear 30, 60, or 100 fold. It's, and an agrarian culture would have known that. But the point of that is, you're not bearing the, the fruit anyways. Because that'll be the couple of parables to follow. I'm the one that bring the fruit. Amen. So this parable then explains, first off, why so few were following Jesus now after his death and resurrection to comfort the disciples who were like, uh, I don't know what to do with this. I know I saw him. I know he appeared to us. But secondly, why did Mark tell it? Because if Mark's writing, especially to a predominantly Roman audience or to a, a, a global audience, an audience beyond the Jewish world, because it's certainly the Jewish world is hearing it, but it's also the Roman world also. So it's a, it's a global audience. One of the questions that has to be out there is, how can you want me to believe in a Jewish Messiah? That's the first problem. If you're not Jewish, they're not respected people. They're, 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 they're always outcasts. They're always hated and despised. And prior to the Gospel of Mark being written, by the way, the Jews were expelled from Rome in the year, I think it was 49 AD. They're expelled from Rome. They're not liked. But not only is it a Jewish Messiah, but he was crucified by Rome. Seriously. If the guy was killed by Rome by means of crucifixion, and you want me to say, oh, that's what your Lord looks like? No, I don't think I can do this. But furthermore, <clears throat> you want me to believe in a Jewish Messiah who was crucified by Rome and the Jews don't even believe in him. How come some of his own people don't believe in him? Right? Remember the gospel of John begins, he came to his own and those mm -hmm. who were his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. John's answering the same question. Why is it that his own people don't receive him? Answer, because their eyes are blind by the devil or they're not willing to suffer persecution, suffering, or comforts and cares of this world. Now, do you see why this parable is so significant? Now, mm -hmm. next week, what we'll do is I'm going to say this parable actually speaks volumes to the church today. Now, we have to kind of go a little bit further because we want to look at the other three parables. We haven't finished the, sec the second parable, uh, the parable of the lamp that's coming and the parable of the, of the seed and the parable of the mustard seed. So let's, let's look at those. So what I'm going to do next week is I'll review all that, kind of summarize it, look at those other two parables, and then say, okay, great. Now, and I think all the questions, you know, really quickly to finish up, all the answers that you guys gave in the small groups and the breakout sessions as to, you know, why do we not believe? They all fall under one of those two categories, don't they? It all mm -hmm. falls under comforts, cares, pleasure, power, whatever, right? Or the fear of suffering, the fear of persecution. So I think those are the large buckets that everything fits in. Fits in. So uh, any questions, any thoughts? Yeah, uh, Rob? Yes. Why do you think it, verse 21, the Greek translation is the only one that translates the lamp is coming. It just seems so strange to me. Because as soon as you translate it, the lamp is coming, your English readers go, that doesn't make any sense. And I don't know how the translators miss it. I'm going to, uh, while we're on the call here, let me look really quickly. I can look up and um, compare other translations very quickly um, and see if anybody does anything. I don't, I'm pretty certain that all of them do this. Um, we're in Mark. Uh, I know some, I know somebody that's on the NIV translation team. Maybe you should send her a message. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good luck on that. Uh, the, the reality is, oops, wrong passage. Uh, translators have to sell. This isn't the answer here, but they still have to sell uh, translations. All right, Mark mm -hmm. 421. Uh, 
Uh, numeric percent, a lamp is not brought. ESV, a lamp is uh, brought. Uh, Net Bible, a lamp is, uh, isn't brought. Uh, NIV, uh, do you bring in a lamp? Uh, New King James, uh, is a lamp brought? New Living Translation, uh, would anyone light a lamp? Oh, and then put it under a basket. So they didn't even address, they, they kind of skirted around is what they did. Um, uh, new revised standard versions. These are the seven versions of however many I have up. Uh, uh, is a lamp brought in to be put under a, uh, the bushel? Every single one of them use the word brought. <clears throat> yeah. And, and it's so, just so, crazy. yeah. The point of that is actually is <laughs> what we need now, as soon as you translate it, the lamp is, is coming. Now we need someone to say, okay, what does that mean? If you say a lamp is brought, you don't need anybody to say what that means. We all know. Yeah. And so you're simplifying the translation for the sake of the reader, but in doing so, you're missing the entire point of the whole parable. The yeah. entire point of it is Jesus is the lamp. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, shame on you. And actually, I'm surprised that something like the Net Bible, the, the new, uh, it's actually called the Internet Bible. It's called the Net Bible, which is a great translation in many ways. I'm actually surprised that they did it. So, uh, su surprised. So, hmm. All right. So yeah. we'll go there next week then, and we'll pick this back up. And we kind of have some questions coming out there. I've said this before in academic settings. I've said this before in churches. I've said this before. And for probably for the last, I'd say at least 10 years, I've been saying this. And no one's challenged me on it or, or denied it. But I think this parable explains everything in the New Testament and in the church today. You read Paul's letters. Why were they arguing with Paul? Just read this parable and you'll find out why they were arguing with Paul. They were trying to... Uh, to offset uh, suffering. They didn't want to suffer from this, this, or this, or they didn't want to lose their power privilege or whatever it might be. This parable explains everything. And then mm -hmm. we have to stop and go, oh, now what am I doing? You know, how in my life have I not put Jesus on the lampstand because I didn't want to lose my power, my privilege, or my money, etc. So, all right. Yeah. Very well. So Father, we come to you tonight and we recognize that it's not easy to put Jesus on the lampstand. And to let that light shine because we recognize that it might cost us something. But Father, help us to uh, the Baptist church I grew up in. We used to sing, I surrender all, uh, all to thee I freely give. And so help us to indeed to be those who surrender all. Our pride, our power, our privilege, our wealth, uh, our comforts, our security for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom. And especially because there are Christians around the world who have surrendered all and they need our help. And help us to recognize that too. So we thank you for this now. We pray these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Rob. You're welcome. Okay. Thank you, guys. I can't stay on. I got another <laughs> Zoom call.